All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, reading through verse 23. Paul continues. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who, are, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand uh, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so here we are, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Um, Just a brief recap on, not just last week, but really that whole section there, 3 through 14. Um, Paul opens the letter with a benediction, a praise to God, in a sense a doxology almost, as he blesses and praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the work that he has done, is doing, and will complete, right? The, 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 the work of election, the work of redemption, the work of perseverance or preservation of the saints. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in the church, in the lives of the people of God here. As salvation is spoken of here as a Trinitarian work, It is not something that you might hear in some circles or you may see some people who are trying to be clever or trying to be skeptical that somehow God or that the Son, Jesus Christ, has to appease an angry father, that that they're at odds, that that God wants to just rain wrath down on everyone, but the Son steps in the way and says, no, 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 let me save a few people here. And, you know, no, this is all part of the the one will of God, right? Though we may speak of three persons in the Trinity, God has one will. And that will is to save a people for Himself. So the Father, the one who is sort of, in a sense, the architect of all this, chooses. The Son, who is the agent of all this, comes into this world and redeems us. And then the Spirit, who sort of oversees these things, He is the overseer, He applies that work of redemption to those whom the Father has chosen. It's all one work. It's all one will. It's all one part of the salvation that is a Trinitarian work. So that, in a sense, was last time, uh, really the last three weeks, as we're kind of, I'm just really wrapping that up in a nice little bow there. Now, as we go into the next passage here, um, now that's an extended benediction there that Paul starts the letter with. Most letters don't really go into that much depth in the beginning about a blessing. But here, Paul is expounding. And remember, again, this, this letter is a little more general than some of the other ones. And now he goes into an extended 
time of prayer. Now, he, he prays in other letters. I mean, if you were just to flip over to Philippians, after verse 2, starting in verse 3, Paul there prays, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. Or in Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You I'm just, you know, I didn't even really, you know, 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Even 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God. Paul does this in every one of his letters. But here, this prayer we're going to look at here as, you know, the last section. If you remember, I said the last section, verses 3 through 14, was one long sentence in the Greek. Well, verses 15 through 23 are also one long sentence in the Greek. So I guess I'm, you know, what I'm saying here is you have divine initiative, divine uh, authority to write and run on sentences. No, I'm, I'm joking. But it's one long run on sentence. Again, as Paul just begins to pray for the Ephesian believers, and he just continues. Because what you have here, he, he, the way really the passage is structured is 16, verse 16, is sort of like the point of the passage. What is this passage about? Well, he, is, he, he, he prays. He gives thanks to them, remembering them in his prayers. And then it, it begins, you get two sort of prayer requests. He, he says that, that, the, God, that God, the, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, and that you may know certain things. And then that knowing is then broken down into three parts. What does he want you to know? The rich of his, uh, the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his, of his power that is working in us. And then he expands on the immeasurable greatness of the power working in us as he describes four things about the power that is working in us. So every time he gets to a point, it sort of expands into two points, and then into three points, and then one of those three points expands into four points. It's like Paul just continues to, to write about all of these things in this prayer. So, at its heart, this is a prayer of enlightenment for the saints. At its heart, Paul wants us to know something. Not just have a head knowledge of it, but a, a knowledge of it that works in our hearts and then, and then that it sort of serves as the foundation of our assurance. It serves as the foundation of our Obedience, it serves as the foundation of everything we do in this Christian life. He wants you to know something. He wants you to be enlightened about something. In fact, um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. It depends on what kind of music you listen to and what kind of circles you run into. But I remember when I, was, uh, when I first became a Christian um, in the early 2000s, and I would go to these sort of big evangelical churches, one song that they would play a lot is Open the Eyes of My Heart. Maybe you know that song, maybe you don't. It was a very popular worship song, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, I want to see you. And so they kind of repeat that. Well, the, the inspiration for that song comes out of Ephesians 1.18, where Paul here prays, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened having the eyes of your hearts sort of 
having the light of this shine in your heart so that you are aware of something. And we'll get into what he wants us to be aware of in a moment. So Paul here, as we start to get into this passage here, Paul here is praying for the Ephesians that the wondrous truths of their Trinitarian salvation will then penetrate and permeate their hearts and their minds. Okay, That the wondrous truths of their Trinitarian salvation will penetrate their hearts and their minds. I, I think, you know, I've always believed this, that if you want to do the right things, you need to know the right things. It is knowledge that motivates behavior. Okay, Now, so I, I don't... I don't advocate for knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, but I do advocate for knowledge in the sense of we want to be informed about what we're doing. We want to have an informed faith. We want to to know that when we are living our lives, when we are combating sin, when we are trying to mortify the flesh, when we're trying to crucify our sin, that there's a reason for that. And that reason is the fact that we have been chosen redeemed, and we are being preserved by the Spirit. It is, it is that work that God has begun in us, that He is continuing in us, and that He will complete in us. When you know some of these things, it, it then fuels and motivates the rest of your life. If you just have a very shallow kind of understanding of some of these truths, you, know, you may do something because somebody up at the front tells you to do something, but you don't know why you're doing it, right? You, you, you know, or maybe you have a very rudimentary understanding of why you need to do some of these things. So Paul wants us to know these things. He wants us to be enlightened about these things. He wants the eyes of our hearts opened. So, with that aside, let's dig into the passage. So first, Paul here prays for support in verses 15 and 16. For this reason... And when you see that, what is this reason? Well, that should direct your attention to what just came from it. What reason? The reason of your Trinitarian salvation. The reason that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. That the Son has redeemed you with His precious blood. And that the Spirit has been given to you as a seal and a down payment of the inheritance to come. For this reason. And then he gives another reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. The Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for the saints is also another reason why Paul is praying for them. And these are things that really, if you're like, well, what makes a Christian a Christian? Well, their love toward all the saints and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) I can't think of two other better ways to describe a Christian. One who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and one one who has love toward all the saints. Paul makes a similar statement in Colossians 1.14. It's two letters over. No, that's not the right verse. One four, I added an extra one. 
We're there in Colossians 1 when he begins his prayer, very similar to Ephesians. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. In another letter that's very similar, Philemon. Again, these are all the prison epistles, in a sense. In Philemon, you don't really mention a chapter because there's only one chapter, but in verse 5 of Philemon, or in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you. Now he's speaking to Philemon, a, a person, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Again, these are marks, if you will, of a Christian, one who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and one who has love toward all the saints. If there's anything that should mark a Christian from someone else who's in the world, it's their faith in Christ and love toward one another. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 13. After he washes the dirty feet of the disciples, after he has served them during the Last Supper, after he has instituted the new covenant in his blood, he then kneels down and washes their feet. And then he says, I've done this for you as an example for you that you should do to one another. And at the end of that chapter, he says, love one another. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And because of their faith and love, Paul then does not cease to give thanks to to God for them, remembering them in his prayers. That means every time Paul prayed, doesn't mean 24-7, but it means every time Paul prayed, he remembers the faith and the love of the Ephesians, and he lifts them up to the Lord. When I pray, I remember you guys. I remember, and he should remember their faith, right? I mean, he was there two years. He labored there for quite a while, right? Um, and it was a very fruitful ministry. Um, so he remembers them in his prayers. And again, this is the main thrust of this passage, his prayer for them, his remembrance of them, his giving of thanks to the Lord. Remember, it's, he's not thanking them for their faith. He's thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for their faith. And he remembers them in his prayers. As we see here, this is the prayer of a shepherd toward his sheep, right? This is, this is a prayer of one who has, who has founded this church, who has labored in this church, who has you know, shed blood, sweat, and tears for this church. So this is a prayer of a shepherd toward a sheep. So it should not only mark my prayers for you all, but it should also mark our prayers for one another. That what Paul prays here in this prayer, we should be praying for one another. I should be praying for you. Others should be praying for me. Giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ for your faith. Giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ for my faith. Giving thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ for our love for one another. And I say this not as one who has perfected this, but as one who needs to constantly be reminded of this, prayer needs to be our first step. Oftentimes it's our last resort. I've tried everything, I might as well pray. No, that should be the first thing you do. It should be the first thing I do, <laughs> is to pray. 
Because that's the best thing you can do. Better than everything else. So secondly, what does Paul pray for? Well, here we're going to see Paul prays for the support. Now he's going to pray for insight. Verses 17 through first half of verse 19. I remember you in all my prayers. That, so there's a purpose statement. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. Probably should be better rendered the spirit, capitalized, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his gracious, or sorry, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So that's Paul's prayer for them, his ins- for insight. So in verse 17, he begins with a purpose statement. This is why he is praying. This is the goal of his prayer. And it's an intercessory prayer for the saints in Ephesus. He is interceding now. First he was thanking God for them. Now he's interceding for them. Lord, may you do these things for them. May you give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. May you open the eyes of their hearts. And again, like I said, uh, some translations say a spirit with small s. I believe it should be the spirit with a capital S. Not that they need to have the spirit indwell them again. The spirit is already dwelling in them. We saw that before. But the spirit also gives illumination. The spirit gives wisdom. The spirit gives revelation in that sense. Not new revelation. All right, Let's, we're not we're not Pentecostals here. Okay. We're, we're, where we go around saying, I've got a word from the Lord. No, no, no. If you have a word from the Lord, you better write that down because apparently that's scripture. Okay. No. Revelation in the sense of enlightening us, illuminating us, making the scriptures, which are the word of God, come alive to us when we read them. The Spirit brings illumination. The Spirit brings wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, that is, God. Or as the Southern Baptist would say, God. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sometimes we get a little carried away. Now, don't be alarmed by the language there where it says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul is not demoting Jesus. He's not all of a sudden, you know, calling him, calling God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and now saying, well, now he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that in the sense of the Son being incarnate, right? When the Son takes on human flesh, in a sense, he becomes subservient to the Father, right? It's in his incarnation. That's why Jesus will say, particularly in John's Gospel, the Father is greater than I, right? I only do what he sent me to do. I live to do his will. That is God, that is God the Son in his incarnate state as the person Jesus Christ, As the Son of God, he is fully equal with God the Father. But here he's saying the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This prayer amounts to a request that God will increase in his people the knowledge of him. That knowledge, again, it's not facts, okay? Don't think 
facts. It includes facts, but it, it's more of a deep, personal uh, type of intimate relationship. That kind of knowledge. The way God knows us, right? That's what Paul says, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, to know as we are known. So he wants the eyes of our hearts opened, enlightened. Now, the natural man, right? We've seen this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And in Romans 1, we know that they have a knowledge of God. They may come to some belief, or they may come to some knowledge of the existence of a God, But only through the spirit of wisdom and revelation can one come to the knowledge of the one true God. Again, Colossians 1.9 speaks to this. Where Paul there says, And so from the day we heard, heard what? Well, of the faith of the Colossians. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That kind of knowledge, that kind of, the word there, epignosis, that kind of understanding of God only comes through the Spirit. The natural man cannot work his way up to that kind of knowledge of God. The best the natural man can do is come to some acknowledgement of an existence of a higher power. The only way you know God as the saving God, the triune God, the one who chose us, redeems us, and preserves us, is through revelation. It's through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit not only brings new, new life and faith, but He also gives us wisdom and revelation. And again, that's illumination in our case. We are not receiving new revelation, but we are having the special revelation illumined to us through the Spirit, revealing the truth of God to us, revealing the truths of God that are contained in the God-breathed Scriptures. In a sense, it's to be... Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I'm consistent then. <laughs> I'm glad that I agree with Scripture. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians 27 and 28, 15, 27, and 28? Yeah, okay. So um, this goes back to something I was just speaking of a moment ago. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 27, 28 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, that is, the feet of Christ, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So in other words, not God. (laughs) When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Yeah, so again, we need to understand that in light of Jesus being the incarnate. When When he assumes human nature... There is a sense in which he becomes subject to to the Father, right? As any human being would be subject to the Father. Now, from the divine side, the divine nature is co-equal with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal. There's no 
There's no subordination of the Son to the Father. Some, some will teach that. There's a doctrine called the eternal subordination of the Son, ESS. Uh, we don't teach that. Uh, the Son is only subordinated to the Father by way of incarnation. When he takes on a human nature, that person, because the person of Jesus Christ is what? Human nature, divine nature, united in one person. Right? So that person, Jesus Christ, becomes subject to the Father. Okay? So thank you for you know, pointing out that I agreed with Scripture. It's always good when I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, it's when I disagree with Scripture that you need to call me out and, and be concerned. And then I, may, I will correct myself. But here, back to the prayer in Ephesians 1. What Paul here is praying for is that the Ephesians will have eyes of faith. Have eyes of faith to see what cannot be seen through natural, physical eyes. The knowledge of him. And again, note that it's a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. If you remember uh, just a few weeks back in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying an intercessory prayer, he begins his prayer. Really, the first petition in his prayer is to have his pre-incarnate glory restored to him. But as he's leading up to that, he prays in John 17, Father, the hour has come, this is verse 1, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and, implied, know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus himself equates, if you will, the knowledge of God the Father and the knowledge of him as eternal life. Now again, this is not knowing facts. <laughs> this is having a personal, intimate relationship with God that only comes through the Spirit working in our hearts. That we may know Him. The knowledge of Him. And then Paul expands on this in verses 18 and 19. So what is being given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, it's having, again, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Now, again, heart. Don't think the blood-pumping organ, okay? In Greek, the word heart meant sort of like the core of a person. In other words, that you may know in the very depths of you, that you may know in the, in the core of your being. The heart incorporated the, the, the intellect, the mind, and the emotions, the will. It was everything that is us, is our hearts. But having the eyes of our hearts enlightened or open, that word means to give light, to illuminate. May the light shine, right, in, in our hearts that we can see, right? It's the same thing. It's like if you want to know where you're going in a dark room, you need light. You need light to shine. Same thing. You know, we are born in darkness, but then the light shines in our hearts, and then we see. And as that light continues to shine, we begin to know God more and more. So he prays that God will illuminate our hearts to know him more, to know him better. And he gives 
then three purposes of this enlightenment and what follows. So having the eyes of your hearts enlightened for what? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And that you may know what, are the, or what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So those are the three parts as he expands on this enlightenment. What does he want you to know? The hope to which he has called you. What is the Christian hope? Eternal life. That is the Christian hope. The hope is our eventual, complete salvation. It is ours now, and it is also will be completed in fullness when Christ returns. He is, that is our blessed hope. The return of Christ. I, I didn't look this up. I should have looked this up. I want to say it's in Titus 3? Titus 1? No, is it 3, 5? Uh... Well, oh yeah, there it is, okay. Yeah, it's part of this passenger. In Titus 3, um, starting in verse 4, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness, of course, I'm starting with a but there, so it's my favorite word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. And you hear that language there. Richly poured out onto us. His own mercy. Very similar to what Paul is writing in Ephesians. Whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the Christian hope. So Paul wants us to know this hope to which he has called us, and that hope is eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 4 of Ephesians, where Paul there says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That one hope is shared amongst all believers. That is the hope of every single Christian that has lived, is living, and will ever live. The hope of eternal life. Life, And then just back up to chapter 2, verse 12. Where there he talks about the Gentiles in Ephesus. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's the plight of everyone who is not in Christ. No hope without God. And then verse 13. But now, (laughs) again, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So now you have a hope. That hope is eternal life. And he says also to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Again, this is one of those times where you're not sure if Paul is speaking of our inheritance or God's inheritance. The way it's 
written in my translation, it says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, we, ta- we looked at this last time when we looked at um, chapter 1, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Remember before, it was, we have been allotted or we have been appointed by lot. Either we have an inheritance appointed to us by lot or we have been appointed, we have been appointed by lot as an inheritance. It makes more sense to say it is our inheritance, but there's a sense in which you can say that, again, like I pointed out last time, we are God's inheritance. His people, is, it, they are his chosen lot, right? It, it, we are God's portion, in a sense. Um, not that we are worth anything, but God has set his love upon us, and then we are his inheritance. God the Father gives us to the Son as a bride. So in a sense, we are you know, his inheritance. But either way, again, I'd like to, I believe, understand this better as our inheritance, the promise of our inheritance. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 14. The Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. What is our inheritance? Well, everything Christ has. We are co-heirs with Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. So everything Christ has, we have. It's not portioned out like, okay, you get... One one thousandth, you get one one thousandth. It's like, no. Whatever Christ gets, we get. Right? There's no second class citizens in heaven. There, we all get the same inheritance, and it is one that is, again, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then finally, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The power toward us who believe. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. We are God's creation. We are God's work of art, in a sense. I think the word there, I have to look at it when I look at it next week. I believe the word there comes into the English as poem. And then you get poema, yeah. So we are his workmanship, his craftsmanship. Some people like to say, we're God's poem. You know? Well, okay. We are his craftsmanship. We are his work of art, if you will. Um, Chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel is made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. God is working. God God is act. He is working. He is powerful. And he continues to work in us. Paul in Romans 1.16 talks about the gospel as the power of God. Right? The power of God towards salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about how we are new creations in Christ. To the greatness of his power, his working, his might. You know, hear those words just kind of as Paul talks about the greatness of his power that is working. By his great might. I mean, it's just, you know, it just speaks of this mighty power working on us. While we don't want to stop at just accumulating a head full of knowledge, of theological knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge, we cannot discount the value of a deepening knowledge of God. Our praise and worship of him must be an informed praise and worship. It's not enough to just say, God, I praise you. Okay? Why are you praising God? 
Because You have chosen Me. Because You have redeemed Me. Because You seal Me by Your Spirit. Because You are working in Me. Because You open the eyes of My heart. That's why I praise You. We need to know why and who in whom we are praising. So now Paul is going to expand on this power that is working in us as now he shifts his focus from us to Christ. Because the power that is at work in us is the same power that was at work in Christ. And we're going to see as he raised him from the dead, as he ascended him to to the right hand of the Father, as he gives everything in dominion to Him. That power that is working in Christ, we're going to see in a moment, is the very same power that is working in us. And Paul wants us to know that. He wants us to know that. So again, the remainder of this passage, as we see here, Paul prays for power, verses 19, the second half of 19 to the end of the passage, is really just an expansion of the idea of the power of God working in us. And then again, that power, as I said, is the the very same power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I mean, I've never really thought about this in any great length, but what do you think it would take to raise a dead person to life? I don't, I don't mean like you see in the miracles that, that like the prophets do when they raise like the widow's son. or I'm talking about someone dead in the grave Raised to new glorious life. Because that's what the resurrection is. This is not like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was a great miracle. Don't get me wrong, right? Lazarus, four days in the tomb. Martha says he stinks now, right? He's decomposing. His organs are, are turning into goo. You know, you don't want to open that tomb. It smells. He's decomposing. It's hot here. It's Palestine. It's the summertime. <laughs> And Jesus says, roll the stone away. And he speaks and Lazarus comes forth. Well, that's not resurrection life. That was a great miracle because no one could deny it, right? Everyone said, what are we going to (laughs) do? What are we going to do? Lazarus is walking. Everyone knew he was dead. He's walking around now. We cannot deny that a great miracle is done. We need to kill Lazarus. (laughs) We need to hide the evidence. That's kind of what they're saying here. That's a great miracle. Not what we're talking about here. This is Raised to incorruptible life, right? What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Incorruptible, glorious, powerful life. Spiritual life. What kind of power does it take to do that? I don't know. The power of God. (laughs) More than any human being. Yeah, more than any human being has. Exactly right. We have resurrection power at work in us. And really, if you think about it in a correlation, what kind of power needs to happen in us to take a dead sinner and bring him to spiritual life? Same power that took Christ, a dead person, and gave him resurrection life. That's the same power, right? We're going to see that, Lord willing, next week when we look at Ephesians 2. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But now God has made us alive in Christ. That is a miracle. Every time an unbeliever comes to faith in Christ, you are witnessing a miracle taking place. 1 Corinthians 6.10 I know I need to 
kind of move on here. The resurrection power at work in us, it takes that kind of power to bring dead sinners back to life and to sanctify them in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.10, where he starts off in verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, no one, no one in this list, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be resurrected. You need that resurrection power working in you in order to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Now more than that, it's the same power that not only raised Christ, but also seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. We saw the heavenly places earlier in verse 3. Blessed be the Lord, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The heavenly places refers to where God is. It refers to that spiritual realm. It refers to things that pertain to the Spirit. And that's where Christ is. Again, He's not literally seated on a throne at God's right hand because God does not have hands. <laughs> okay, But the point is, is that Christ is in the position of power, privilege, authority, all these things. So it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power working in us that elevated, ascended him to the right hand of God the Father. And he can't stop. He's got he's to keep going. Verses 20 and 21. Um, the same power that worked in Christ when he raised from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So he's not just sitting at God's right hand because it's a, it's a cool thing to do. Hey, look at me, I'm sitting at God's right hand. Here's a postcard from God's right hand. Wish you were here. No. This is the seat of supreme privilege and power. This is the reign of Christ now. It's not some future expectation. It's a present reality. He is seated there now. He has been elevated above all powers now. And we'll see that consummated in, in when he returns. That's where, you know, when we get to verse 22, he's going to quote from Psalm 8. Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, this present evil age, here you see Paul's two-age theology here, but also in the one to come. That age to come when Christ returns and everything is made new, the eternal state, that is the age to come. Right now, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. As we're going to see in this morning's sermon, he is a king, right? Pilate's going to say, are you a king? He says, well, yes, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And then, so he's, and then Pilate's like, so you are a king. <laughs> and he says, you have said so. Um, his kingdom is now, but it's a spiritual kingdom. It'll come in power and glory at the end of the age and inaugurates the age to come. And like I said, then Paul quotes from Psalm 8.6, in verse 22, Psalm 8, um, it's, it's a great psalm. 
talks about, in a sense, the glory of man, but then you can say the glory of the Son of Man. In Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, Psalm of David, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? So, you know, David's like, I look at everything you've made, and I, and I consider, it's like, why are you mindful of us? We're dust. And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's the Son of Man we're talking of there because Hebrews 2 also cites this passage speaking of Jesus Christ. But Paul says here, look, he has been ascended, he has been given dominion. All things are going to be put under his feet and he is the head over all things to the church. If you remember last time we looked at, or maybe it was two times ago, we looked at everything being summed up in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on the earth. And he's kind of echoing this thought here. All things are under his feet. All things, he is the head over all things. More importantly, he's the head of the church, too, which he calls his body. That, you know, there's this, that, again, that great metaphor. He is the head. We are the body. We're united to him. And we're also united to one another and to the fullness of Christ. Okay, we're getting close to time here. So, let me briefly bring this to a close. This passage here, I think, gives us a powerful prayer by Paul for the saints in Ephesus. And we need this prayer for our lives, too, because we become far too distracted with the world. We get far too distracted. You know, when you spend one day in church and six days in the world, it gets far too easy to become far too distracted by the world. We need to pray this prayer for the church and for ourselves. And again, remember, Paul saying all these things, not so much to extol Christ, which he is, but so that we know that this is the same power that is at work in us. This power that raised Christ above all things, that's the power that is at work in us. And as we'll see again next time in verse 6, just look at chapter 2, verse 6, we are raised up with him and seated and he, and, and he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So there's a sense in which we are now, even now, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Anyway, the good news of the gospel continues to fill. May the, may the good news of this gospel continue to fill our hearts and our minds. May we, may we really grasp this idea that Paul is trying to uh, get at here. I'll stop here because... Tried to start on time.